everyone, and welcome to the 28th episode of Digital Foundry Direct Weekly, our weekly show where we talk about the latest in gaming and tech news. And the triumvirate has reconvened. Joining me, first of all, John Linneman. Hey, Rich. It's been uh, some weeks now, so it's good to be back with you guys again. Absolutely. And live from Berlin, the man, Alex Batalia. Hey there, Rich. Hey there, John. Excited to talk about DF Direct Weekly News. We're filming this before the major Sony showcase that's happening. Um, so we're not going to be talking about that. We will be producing a separate show. So let's move on to the topics that are on the docket. We're going to kick off with the new PlayStation 5, the CFI 1100 series. And um, kind of curious, I mean... John, you're kind of like a sort of outside observer on all of this. So what's your take so far? Because it began with the video by Austin Evans, right? Yeah, exactly. So I don't actually have the units. I haven't done any testing. I'm just sort of watching from uh, the Twitterverse and talking to you fellows about the stuff that have actually been testing it. And it's so, so basically the original report was more along the lines of, hey, the heat output is uh, increased from the vent and the actual heatsink is smaller. Um, and basically we're finding more and more that there's a lot more to this. It's not just about any of those things. And, um, so I guess it seems like the idea here then is to get to the, to the center of this. Like, does it actually have any, any real impact on performance? Does it have, is it actually cooling the system adequately? Because fundamentally the, the main board of the chips, they're the same, I believe. So it's really just a swap of the heatsink. So it's, I guess it's a question of how efficient that actual heatsink is at moving heat off of the S, you know, this is because again, uh, stuff coming, basically the heat coming from the, the rear vent isn't really a good way to judge anything because uh, a cooling unit that does its job well should produce more heat from the vent, I'd imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's kind of totally inconclusive as to, to what you can draw. I mean, you can get an idea from the thermal camera, you know, where the centers of heat are and basically the, the sort of system for expelling the heat. But the things from my perspective, first of all, uh, I thought Austin's video was well worth watching because it was the first time we actually saw inside the new unit, right? And we did yeah, actually yeah. get to see, we got an explanation for why the unit is 300 grams lighter and... Uh, on the face of it, the explanation is that the heatsink has been uh, quote-unquote downgraded, and it has been downgraded in terms of surface area, uh, the thermal conductivity of material. I mean, I think aluminium's like got 60% of the um, thermal conductivity of copper, and there's a lot less copper in there. But um, going back to your point, John, I think there are changes to the board based on new information that's emerged. Oh, but yeah, but um, and, you know, this is the kind of difference between a console and a PC, right? Because if you take a PC motherboard and you basically put a smaller cooler on it, logic suggests that it's going to run hotter, right? Unless there's some kind of crazily more efficient design. But Sony does have um, control over the whole system and the firmware, of course. Um, now, at the time of of recording this i think um the unit that we sent to steve at gamers nexus is going to be arriving with him today so he's going to be getting straight on that and then we'll get our content out um so we don't really have any insight into the internals apart from what austin has said and shown i did put an article out on eurogamer which was um basically first impressions of my unit which was to say 
we know how to stress the SOC to basically produce maximum power consumption. I mean, if it's really simple. I mean, uh, if you go back to a remedies control and you turn on ray tracing and then you go into photo mode, the frame rate cap is removed. The GPU runs absolutely flat out. It's always above 200 watts, right? So what I did was really quite straightforward. I just uh, ran that system fully tapped out for hours on end and the fan didn't spin up. Everything seemed to be fine with it. Since I did that article, I repeated that and I actually stuck it into my IKEA Bester media cabinet, which has no real business hosting a PlayStation 5. Wait, <laughs> so how can it be called the Bester whatever, anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not best in terms, of, uh, in terms of housing your next generation consoles. But put it this way, the PlayStation 5 barely fits into the shelf there. And um, even though there is sort of uh, air outlet at the back, there's actually two big um, panels there which block most of the output of the uh, on the back. It's really like a stress test condition here. And I just left the control test running for a couple of hours, a couple of hours, and it, no change to the fan, didn't speed up. Uh, what I did after that was to basically benchmark the system uh, using games that we know don't run at 60 frames per second, that run with an unlocked frame rate. So we should be able to repeat the results. And I didn't see any change to the uh, to the to the output of the PlayStation 5. So my sort of initial conclusion so far is that it's a PlayStation 5. It's using the same power output as the original launch model. There's been no change to the SOC. And as for the quality of the thermal solution, well, it seems to be holding up. Uh, the only reservation I think generally people have is longevity, because if you have got a system that's running hotter, then generally the silicon would degrade quicker. Um, but we could be talking years here. And based on my test so far, and we're going to have a full review, I don't think there's anything to worry about with the new unit. Um, and I don't really see any reason to be that concerned about whether you should buy the old one or the new one. Uh, the old one, according to Steve, had issues with cooling the memory modules. All right, I remember or, that. Or specific, yeah, yeah, specifically one of them, which was, I think, running at 93 Celsius. So, yeah, I mean, it may well be that they've revised the board or the or the cooling for that particular part of the board, and you may un end up with a net gain. The, the new cooler may be more efficient. We'll have the information soon, and, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to getting the whole picture on this one. But generally, I think from a strategic standpoint, right, Sony's... Um, going to be shifting millions of these things in the, in the run-up to the holiday season and beyond. So they must have confidence in the design. That's not to hand wave away any potential issues, which, you know, need to be tested. But that's the situation. That's the lie of the land at the moment. I mean, they're just following the, the typical console development cycle where, I mean, they're, every generation, companies are finding ways to cut costs to ship the units for less money. Uh, that's just how it is, and it makes perfect sense. And this is just the first iteration of many, many, many to come. And if you look back at history across, since we're talking PlayStation, you look at all the PlayStations, they actually all kind of have, within the community that keeps these things alive, the retro community that does repairs on them, you'll start to find lists of, okay, these specific revisions are considered great. These other revisions are considered less good. Uh, they all have different sort of characteristics. 
And it's the kind of thing that you won't find out for years, basically. So <laughs> it'll be curious to see where this one ends up landing. And I guess it's only really interesting now because it is the first of many, many revisions to come. Uh, so yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on this long term and just because it's a kind of an opportunity to do that, right? Because we haven't really paid that close attention, I think, to various revisions. But knowing how important it is to keep that stuff in mind now uh, for the future might be worth doing so. Uh, just uh, one of the things I'm curious about is uh, when, I mean, this revision means if they're cutting back on material costs because they're using a, a different um, a material, uh, aluminum instead of copper, and, you know, less of it altogether, I wonder when those costs will come to the consumer. Uh, like the, the the lessened cost, essentially, because, you know, they're they're selling you a product that has less stuff in it. So I wonder when it transfers to the consumer, maybe in a year, maybe in two. Um, yeah, I mean, they've got to basically make I think they have done it now. They they can actually sell the machine without making a loss. Um, that's something I mean, obviously, I don't know how many units there are. I think there's maybe over 10 million PlayStation 5s out there and they've lost a lot of money on each and every unit sold, which is offset by the money that they get from um, software sales. It's interesting that they're saying that the disc version is now break even or maybe even slightly profitable, but there's been no comment on the digital edition, which I suspect is still um, losing the money. But I'll tell you what, um, I don't think in the overall scheme of the, you know, looking more globally at the ecosystem, I don't think they are uh, losing more money on that simply because you can't buy disc versions of the game. And I'll give you a really good example of um, a specific uh, example here. And it comes down to, um, I'm currently looking at the Assassin's Creed Odyssey patch for um, PlayStation 5, which is essentially back and pat plus, removes the frame rate limit, you get 60 frames per second on PlayStation 5 running this PlayStation 4 game. If you buy the game on the PlayStation Store, it's 55 pounds. <laughs> Whereas, I, yeah, I can pop into uh, oh my a shop. I can, yeah, exactly. I can pop into a shop a um, couple of miles down the road from me and pick it up for £15 on disc. So that's kind of like an example of, you know, when you're locked into the sort of discless ecosystem, although a lot of people really like the benefits of that, you can only buy your games from one source. Sony owns that source and that's where they're making their money. So, yeah, just a, a bit of extra flavor on in terms of costings there but yeah interesting stuff and um, we hope to have the review on it soon but i don't want anybody to be thinking oh well you know should i buy the old unit should i buy the new one we don't really have uh as you say john the answers to that aren't going to be sort of available for years to come but in the here and now i've thrown everything at this thing and it's working fine the new unit that is just as good as the old one and uh, I don't think there's any issues in buying a PlayStation 5 if, if that's what you want. So with that, let's move on. Okay, so we're going to be um, sticking with PlayStation news here. We're going to be talking about the confusion surrounding the pricing of Horizon Forbidden West. John, what's all of this about? I guess last week when they sort of revealed um, release information on Horizon, uh, essentially it was initially said that owners of the standard edition, and I think one edition up from that, would no longer have access to the upgrade version. So if you purchased the game on PlayStation 4, you would not get an upgrade to the PS5 version if you upgraded your console, which is uh, backwards, or I guess that does not fit with what was said in the past by Jim Ryan, right? We actually recorded a segment in the original Direct last week discussing this. But then, <laughs> on Saturday... 
uh, they reversed that decision, which was the right thing to mm-hmm. do, I think. Uh, and so yeah. owners of any of the versions, I guess, of Horizon 2 will receive the upgrade for PS5. But uh, I guess they they next then said, well, going forward uh, for cross-gen stuff, uh, if you want to upgrade from PS4, it's now going to cost you 10 bucks. And this sort of opens up a whole can of worms on, you know, this sort of cross-gen upgrades. Uh, when you look at what the competition is doing, you consider just the nature of, of game pricing right now. Um, there's a lot to, to talk about here, I think. Wouldn't you guys say? I guess the question is, uh, do should next-gen games cost t- 10 nominal US dollars more or in Europe 10, uh, 10 euros more? Uh, which ends up being quite a lot more than just 10 US dollars, as you know. I never really had an issue with a $70 game. I mean, we've seen those prices in the past. 70 US dollars, it's not that big of a deal. But 80 euros is unacceptable to me. And even as a proponent of, you know, physical media and all that, I find that I just, I'm not going to pay that. Uh, That's essentially 100 US dollars, just about. Not quite, but close. Uh, it's just, that's too much. And I feel like I understand why they wanted to bump up the price, but increasing it that dramatically in every territory, I guess, outside of, I, I need to check some of the other territories, I guess, but it seems like only the U.S. had a somewhat reasonable, though still controversial, price increase where everywhere everywhere else got, may I say, screwed, if you will. There is a sort of slight mitigating factor, though, in that the U.S. price does not include sales tax, whereas yeah, the U- but... European prices include uh, VAT, which is like 20% where I live. It doesn't make up for it enough, though. I think ultimately the end the end result is the customer ends up shelling out a lot more for one of these games. And every single PS5 disc that I've purchased, I've waited uh, to get it at a discount. Which, by the way, I guess is another advantage of having a disc-based system instead of a digital one, since retailers uh, and online shops are much more likely to do that. <laughs> I'll I'll describe it from my perspective, coming from playing PC games. Where, by the way, the price can, will not be seventy uh, anything on PC. They no one would buy those games. I'm gonna be completely honest. No one's gonna buy those games. Um, so it would probably be sixty there anyway. But the point is that. What is actually happening in the background process that justifies an increase in cost uh, to be shoved onto the consumer at that point? And looking historically at PC games, uh, this happens with every single PC release where there, there's the chance to buy the game on a low-end system, a low-end PC, and a chance to buy it on a high-end PC. And just because you have access to better graphical options and better performance doesn't mean the price increases. Another thing to consider from the PC perspective is that um, people have been mentioning that they have to code in uh, stuff like 3D audio or um, I, I guess the extra vibration features uh, or the tension features in the uh, PlayStation 5's new controller. Well, you know, like if you look at a lot of games, uh, racing games, flight games, or even just general games, uh, there's different peripheral support that occurs uh, that is not included in the original package cost necessarily or increased cost. Rather, the price is there from the people who already have those peripherals. I own a wheel, I bought that wheel. That means I get support in games that have wheel support. I don't pay extra for it. Um, so I don't see, from my PC player perspective, I don't actually see any justification for this. And I think Microsoft sees it that way too, because they have this continuous idea of a generation of games that you buy a game one place, much like you would on PC, and you play it through all their devices uh, that they have. And it gets keeps getting upgraded each time. And I imagine if, 
you know, I imagine if, uh, you know, they introduce a new elite controller with, um, for example, for example, like these tension features in the in the controller buttons, which they may end up doing at some point. I don't think that's going to make the game cost extra on the Xbox side as well either. Uh, so I just see this as like competitive wise, it doesn't make sense other than the fact that Sony's dominating. And uh, from the PC player's perspective, this is not there's no precedent for this in a good manner. And I don't see it as justified. So that's just like my two cents. Yeah. Even in the console space, though, I mean, we've seen stuff like Metro Exodus, right? Yeah, I right. mean, that was a significant improvement, uh, and that was not an upgrade they charged for. Is that right? Yeah, it's free. So uh, if they can do it, and they're a much smaller company, it seems like... Uh, I, I still can't believe that they, like, the Ghost of Tsushima price was like so much higher for what it was. That, that's one that where I was like... While it's true they did give PS5 owners at least some of a free upgrade with the enhanced original, but... Uh, there wasn't enough added here to warrant that, basically. It's a really interesting one, and I'm seeing both sides of the equation here. Uh, first of all, let's talk about Microsoft. Um, I think it's fair to say that their uh, game sales of their first-party titles have undoubtedly reduced uh, significantly. I mean, we're not allowed to quote the, the sales data that we've got available from... Um, uh, the UK tracking source, but it's no secret to say that for Microsoft first-party titles uh, sell less now because of Game Pass. So Microsoft, um, when we talk about Microsoft, we need to also factor in that um, the entire uh, budgetary outlook for how those games are paid for has changed. It's done on a subscription basis for the most part now. So, you know, um, they're basically looking to uh, increase subscriptions and um, game sales and revenue from game sales are secondary to that objective, I, I would venture to suggest. However, um, I get 100% where you're coming from, Alex. If we look at the PC side of things, right, um, just going back to the last generation, the PC versions often had stuff like higher resolution textures, improved artwork, uh, improved features, which you didn't pay extra for. And in, in fact, the PC versions for various reasons um, were uh, significantly cheaper uh, because the platform holder, there is no platform holder that takes a 30% cut. So, you know, from that sort of perspective, the, the concepts that the, 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 the developer is putting in extra time and effort and you know they need extra money to pay for it isn't really borne out on the pc side of things but then again on the playstation side of things they've always targeted just one specific platform or, or two consoles in the case of playstation 4. so you know there is additional effort there but you know it's an interesting discussion we had the other day alex about the concept of additional effort because you can put additional effort into anything. I mean, you were talking about <laughs> yes. you were talking about a um, you know a, a more efficient multi-threaded renderer, for example. Right? Yeah, yeah. You could put in the effort to make sure the engine scales higher uh, to many more thread count, but it's not reflected in the price. You know, uh, it's only reflected in the subjective price. I guess if people buy your game, they see that they, it's not using their um, their hardware correctly. So then it goes down in market price as a result of that. Or maybe it goes up in market price as a result of that. That's pretty rare, though. I don't think that would actually ever happen. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, just the general idea is that there's a lot of things that happen in the background 
uh, on the PC side where um, you're technically investing in a lot more time and effort uh, and it's transparent or it's, it's like it's not so visible to the user other than the fact that the product comes out and it's never reflected in the price for different versions. It just seems so... I don't think that's a good argumentation to say why these games should cost 10 euros or $10 more. Yeah, but moving on, I think one thing that does need to improve is uh, communication. And um, it's kind of a bit strange that Sony just didn't predict that there would be this backlash, that there would be no upgrade path for the PlayStation 4 to the PlayStation 5 for Horizon Forbidden West. And in turn, we have this situation now where um, you've basically the PlayStation 5 version that's still more expensive is available to buy when you could, in theory, buy the PlayStation 4 version, which is cheaper, and then gets a free upgrade to PlayStation 5. I mean, there's kind of that's why they're doing it. It's just kind of bizarre logic gaps in there. And at least, you know, by saying, hey, everything's going to be more expensive now, um, <laughs> stuff like this won't happen again. But I don't know. I don't think this uh, this discussion is over and maybe we'll revisit it in time. But for now, let's move on. The next discussion point, and I think it's a really interesting announcement. Remedy has confirmed, confirming all of those leaks, that Alan Wake Remastered is coming and it's launching this fall. Uh, Alex, do you have any experience with this game and are you excited by the remaster? I've got a great experience with this game. I was one of those people who fell in love with the initial concept of Alan Wake when it was demoed on PC a bajillion years ago. I can't even remember when it was. And then the game changed its concept, it became smaller, it became more focused, which is, you know, that's actually a pretty good thing for games usually. I think nowadays when everything's open world and huge. Um, the game came out, I was possibly less than thrilled with it in a number of ways. Uh, I thought the, the storyline was really fun and engaging. Uh, it just came, it became a bit too samey after a while. Playing the, the gameplay was its least interesting aspect for me, uh, which is different because Remedy Games in the past before that had had amazing gameplay, uh, you know? So uh, it's not my most fa my favorite Remedy title, but has a, a pretty awesome Xbox 360 version, I think, uh, with interesting rendering resolutions, and it's just so of that era. And then we've got, you know, the the years later PC port, uh, which thankfully came out, which is an amazing PC port actually from the time. Uh, and now we're seeing that again, and it's probably going to uh, remedy, haha, a lot of the issues from that original PC port, except Platinum ported now to all these platforms and i i'm really excited for it actually i, I think remedy makes amazing games yeah so i mean i also played through this and american nightmare and it's not my favorite of the remedy games mainly because it, it's more like open worldy it's not really an open world but you're literally running around in open environment so there's less like bespoke level design if you will but it's still an engaging game with a cool story and atmosphere and um, I like the idea of them essentially bringing it over to some of their more modern technology, if you will, hopefully. Um, so we don't yet know, I guess, what all that entails, but uh, there's a lot of potential there to bring this back and sort of do it justice. And also, can I just say, this is a perfect game for HDR, so I hope they include that in there. Uh, because the contrast between light and dark uh it's it's like the idea of a flashlight cutting through the darkness that's an effect that looks so good in hdr and yeah but i if i recall does control actually i feel like control never got hdr support actually 
Control did not get HDR support, actually. So you have to rely on auto HDR through Windows or through um, Xbox in that case. But auto HDR on Xbox only works on backwards compatible games. I believe that is true, yes. Uh, so I guess it's the you had to have to use the PC to get HDR there, which is a shame because Control is once, one of, once again one of those games where it has a pretty awesome color palette and darkness. It's curious that they're, they're bringing this back in this way. Um... I gather that re the Remedy team is very fond of it, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, I don't believe they own the Max Payne license. I think that's like with Take-Two or whatever, or Rockstar. Uh, obviously, Quantum Break, I don't think they're too fond of how that went for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> really, like if they wanted to remaster an old project, this is kind of the only one. So, you know, it does make sense. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that haven't played it, and also, times are different now, and I think people might appreciate it more uh, through the modern lens than when it was first released. I'm just looking back at the original article that we wrote about this in 2010, 24th of May. I remember reading that. <laughs> yeah, it's basically, uh, well, at the time we said it's 540p, which I think has been revised since then to 544p. <laughs> wow! <laughs> that 4p is, you know, make or break. Wait, 960 but, by, um, wait, 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 540 <laughs> 960 by 544, that's the Vita resolution. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, however, they did use uh, 4X MSAA. Um, so this was an interesting discussion point at the time in terms of you know image quality and how it all works out. But at the same time, um, you know, obviously all of those limits were broken with the PC version. But I think it's fair to say that probably the majority of the audience who did play the game probably played it on Xbox 360. So the gains we should get from the remaster just in terms of image quality should be uh, pretty immense. But it's going to be interesting to see whether they retain MSAA or do something different with the remaster. Rich, that's really interesting that you reminded me of that the, their approach with the lower resolution using MSAA because wasn't Quantum Break also kind of technically one of the first games ever to do like sort of a reconstruction sort of technique? Pretty early on. Like it was very yeah. early. And I mean, at the time, people didn't really... So I think their native resolution was like 720p, but they were essentially using their technique to give the impression of a higher resolution at a time. And, and I remember that kind of blowing up for them in a negative way, but in really they were kind of thinking ahead. I feel. There is definitely a kind of um, journey rendering wise, moving from Alan Wake to quantum break to control. And um, yeah, I, I was actually a pretty big fan of quantum break and it's kind of a bit sad that the game is, uh, uh, had issues that, that kind of got in the way of the great things that it did do. And, you know, I guess we did see uh, a lot of those um, ideas and techniques fully realised in control. Um, I'm going to be curious to see whether they do anything more than a, than a straight sort of remaster and um, uh, to see what kind of features they might add to it. But uh, I think my sort of recollection of the game is that... Um, this concept of using light as a weapon, I thought it was kind of underdeveloped. Uh, yeah, I thought yeah. there was a lot more they could do with it, you know, bearing in mind what light can do. And it was, um, but the effects work and, and the kind of look of the game was just a class apart at the time. So, yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what they come up with on this. Gentlemen, news alert. We just got some uh -oh. new details in. We actually have the details now on Alan Wake Remastered. So some of the questions that we posed... Just a few moments ago, 
And now the answer to you. You guys ready for this? Let's go through this. I'm Let's excited. Go. So remastered 4K graphics at 60 frames per second, but on PS5 and Series X. Uh, but the the PS4 and Xbox One have a 60 FPS performance mode and a 30 FPS quality mode. So it is a cross-gen game, of course. Uh, they say they're redoing the cinematic scenes, improving the facial animation and lip sync. They're sort of enhancing the environments and the character models. They have new hair and shaders as well. And they say improved visual effects and lighting. Um, unfortunately, so one, there is no HDR support, which is disappointing. Uh, and also it seems that they are not going to be adding any sort of ray tracing features due to the fact that it's built on older technology, which I can, you know, I can understand. I mean, that makes sense, right, Alex? It's pretty, I mean, that's disappointing, a huge undertaking. But still, that's huge, a lot of work. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, that gets into the topic we just talked about with <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, it needs to cost 10 US dollars more now. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the resolutions here. PlayStation 4 1080p, uh, PlayStation 4 Pro Performance Mode, 1080p 60. Um, PlayStation 4 Pro Quality Mode, 1296p. We should maybe get a table up here or something. It says 1296 to 21... Wait, or is that just the final... That's the final, final output. I think that's... Yeah, it's just the render yeah. output. Uh, the yeah. rendering resolution and the, and the output. But it looks as though, uh, certainly on the PS4 Pro and uh, Xbox One X upwards... Uh, they're retaining 4X MSAA, which I think is great. Uh, but it looks as though the uh, base consoles don't have it, um, based on, on what we're seeing here, which is curious. That's I'm not sure if that's possible, because I've, I've talked about this before on the channel, but Alan Wake, if you turn off MSAA, it uses uh, MSAA to do all of its transparency effects. So it gets rid of all the vegetation if you turn off MSAA. So we'll see if it, maybe it has 2X or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it's a lower quality msaa solution like 2x or something i don't know i'll be curious okay there's going to be dual sense functions and uh, we got some pc specific information here it's dx12 64-bit no ray tracing but there will be dlss which is kind of interesting right because performance isn't really a problem on that old version right maybe it is now though because they've increased the graphical presentation to good i don't know for playstation 5 and series x it actually specifies 1440p at 60 I think FPS. that's the performance mode. Is there? Uh, oh, that's right. Is there going to be? A, did we say that there's a? No, they don't. They don't mode? say anything about a. a no, you're a quite qual right. Quality mode. So. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be interesting, isn't it? Curious. Yeah. 1440 with that 4x MSAA is still pretty awesome, to be honest. I, am I going to assume these are back compat then? Uh, up, upgrade. I'm guessing this is a back compat plus situation. I don't know. The resolutions are different. That's absolutely happened before. I don't know. We've got some more questions to, to get answers here. The Crisis 2 and 3 Remastered are. They've got the PS5 version up to like maxing out at 4K now, and it's targeting 60 FPS. The PS4 Pro does not hit that resolution, nor does it go for 60 FPS. So it is possible to do that. I'm curious, uh, Rich, like you said, DLSS, this game's not going to be very heavy. So... I also am curious if DLSS can be combined with MSAA. Dude, has that happened before? No. I want to see that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, would, I don't even know. What would that we'll look see. like? Well, it would be really cool looking. Probably perfect image quality, I'd imagine. There's a ton of interesting information here. Still some questions to resolve. Um, but uh, sort of good news and bad news on the technical side of things. And I guess we just need to 
kind of see some final code at this point. It's interesting that they're actually talking about download sizes, which kind of says to, to me that the game is finished. Beyond that, they talk about save transfer, how you can go from one like PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5, but not back, which to me suggests that actually this probably is a native app uh, after all. So otherwise, none of that I don't think would apply. I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, well, let's move on to the next topic. Here's the thing, right? At some point, we have to take holidays. <laughs> well, apart from me. Um, but um, oh, no, you do too. You must. <laughs> you do too, Rich. You gotta. Maybe soon. Um, but the bottom line is that uh, we really wanted to do some stuff on Quake Remastered. Um, John was the guy, best place to do that. You did do that stream with um, Machine Games, though, for QuakeCon which was really, really good. But we didn't actually do anything on the channel and the moment has kind of passed, but we've got to talk about Quake Remastered uh, because it's pretty awesome, right, John? Yeah, so Quake Remastered is phenomenal. Uh, very well done. Uh, it's a conversion from Night Dive Studios, of course. Um, we are big fans of Night Dive here. They always do exceptional work, meticulous work even. Uh, their, their focus is primarily on bringing back classic games in a way that feels extremely authentic, right? Uh, it's to the point where every little rendering feature that you would expect is properly simulated or like matched on a new machine. Obviously the case in point I often bring up and because it just tickled my fancy so much was that the Doom 64 thing where they, uh, you know, basically did the, the tri point texture filtering to mimic the N64 in a shader, which was cool. Uh, so, They've brought that here. So Quake Remastered is, in fact, Quake Remastered. Uh, but although they started from GL Quake, one of their objectives was clearly to essentially solve the problems with GL Quake. Uh, I pointed this out in my Quake DF Retro, where when you play in the hardware accelerated mode, a lot of the original visual effects are broken. Uh, the way water works, for instance, uh, it's essentially they just sort of like warp a flat surface texture around to give the impression of moving water. And then when you go below the surface, it looks like they're just sort of adjusting the vertices in a weird way to, it gives you the impression of motion, but it's, it's shows seams in the level and it doesn't look great. It was never quite right. Uh, things like that. They actually finally fixed that. So the water is now correctly animated. Uh, it's still a little different from software mode, but it's much, much more like that. And it looks fantastic. They even retained the, the transparent water feature from GeoQuake though, which is cool. Uh, the underwater ripple is actually sort of derived from the N64 version of all things, which looked better than any other version of the game when it comes to the underwater even effects. Even Rendition Faraday, John? Yeah, Are you even better than that. It's, <laughs> it's, and that's just one feature, but they also added a lot of extra upgrades. Like, you get actual colored lighting now. Uh, you get real-time dynamic shadows from everything. Um, they upgraded the, they have an option for higher quality models, for instance, and they did this very, I think it's cool. They did this very subtle sort of um, Im improvement to all of the game's meshes. So like enemies, weapons, all this stuff. Um, I don't know if it's just like a subdivision kind of thing where they just took the original model, subdivided it some more, or if they actually went back and recreated them to look authentic. But either way, they do look authentic. Uh, you also get per object motion blur, per pixel motion blur, which is cool. And when combined with the uh, interpolation on the models, which is nothing new, of course, but you combine that together, uh, that looks great. And I think actually Kaiser, SV Kaiser, uh, Sam, 
was what was he i think he was the guy who first pioneered this sort of animation interpolation in these older games yeah, I think it, it's like uh, the initial code that he developed was eventually taken over into GZ Doom and things like that. I think back in the day. I'm pretty sure like he's the guy that originated this stuff, which is super cool. So that's, of course, brought forward. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot to say about the actual tech side. And maybe at some point I will do like a revisit this maybe in some way. Uh, but beyond the actual tech side, the actual um, they added new level stuff. So. You've got the original Quake with the Nine Inch Nails soundtrack. You've got both of the original mission packs. You've got the the one add-on pack that was done by Yurk from Machine Games previously. It's, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name on it now. Yeah, it has a really funny name. Something Machines? No, the second one is the is the something of the machine. And that oh, that's the mistake. second, that's the new one. They essentially did a brand new episode for Quake with a new hub and tons of amazing levels and as we discussed in that stream the guys at machine games love quake so much they would just get together on wednesday nights and just like make quake maps together and somehow that passion ended up spiraling out into being able to do an official like add-on for quake for this new re-release that's awesome uh, which is fantastic and on top of that the game is now on all the consoles so we have more console versions of quake and they're actually really really well done uh obviously they run super well even on switch 60 fps everywhere all the visual features you could want my only complaint there is that i do feel like the gamepad this is difficult the 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 aim the aiming on the right stick the way they do acceleration on there is a little bit weird feeling somehow uh the dead zone stuff is a little weird but i i've always seen that that's very difficult to get right when you take like a pc game like this and sort of have to build gamepad controls for it like it's fine but I still prefer playing with a mouse and keyboard by far. Uh, so that that stuff is just all super well done, I think. The only real... Everybody seems mostly happy. There have been some complaints about, oh, they didn't put the source code out there. Like, they're not living up to what John Carmack uh, has has said. But John Carmack works for, va for Facebook, guys. Come on now. I think, <laughs> think things are a little different. Uh, but, you know, it's... <laughs> It, the fact the fact is it would be great i i know the night dive guys would love to release the source but you can't if bethesda isn't into doing that for this version of the port that's fine i'd still rather this exists than not because there was no other way where you're going to get this on all those platforms and uh it's fundamentally they own that they can do what they want with it so if if the difference is uh a release but no source code versus no release at all then obviously i'm going to take that new release because it doesn't take anything away from the original Quake stuff. And yeah, so for me at least, it's it's all good. I love playing this version of Quake. It's like my new favorite source port at the moment, I think. Uh, and the, the new episode alone is worth the price of admission. And I, I don't know the price off the top of my head, but the, it's quite cheap, actually. For one of the greatest games ever made, the most influential games ever made, having a new version that you can get, you know, like this, just do it. Plus. This also ties into our earlier topic. If you owned Quake on Steam for all those years, uh, you get this for free. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, you, it like gives you the ability to choose the original game when you launch it or the, the remaster, which is awesome. You get to keep all your old Quake stuff, but you get this in addition. So we've got um, co-op play, right, for the new missions or all the missions. Oh, I forgot to mention yeah. that. The split screen. Split screen. Oh, my God. It's amazing. So the split screen, obviously, that's a great feature, right? You can play co-op and split screen deathmatch. But if you play it on the PC, like on an ultra-wide monitor, like I did two-player co-op on that, you actually get basically what looks like two pseudo four by three displays. So you basically have two instances of full screen quake as you would have seen it on the same monitor running on the same PC that you can play. And the only thing I haven't tried yet that I want to try is hooking up multiple mice and keyboards. Cause if it could sit at a big desk with, with two, two keyboards, two mice and play some quake together, and um, one other question, uh, obviously, from my perspective, I mean, I've sunk untold hours into the multiplayer back in the day. And, you know, lunchtime deathmatch was a thing, right? Um, so this basically allows for pretty easy access to multiplayer. You don't really need to worry about accessing a multiplayer game of Quake anymore. There's no difficulties doing doing so, right? Is it cross-play? Uh, I think so. I have to double check on that, but for that would be pretty rough though if you were playing on a console versus a PC player, to be honest. But I, th I have to double check because some of their previous releases were crossplay. But you're right; the main point here is that you can easily get into multiplayer games. You can easily connect with your friends. There's no nothing, no hoops to jump for anymore. Not that it was that difficult to get a classic Quake game running. You could still do it, but you had to be a little more dedicated to get there. But now it just kind of opens it up and lets people play Quake again. Well, I have just uh, Googled, as is my want, and I have confirmed that crossplay is enabled. So you can have Switch versus PC. Uh, possibly uh, more useful for the uh, co-op side of things. Definitely for the co-op side um, of things. But, Actually, you know, that's it's, awesome. It's, 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 you know, just gets better and better, right? So basically, mm -hmm. we didn't have time to do a full video on it, and I'm actually really regretting that now. So maybe we should go back to it if we can find a, a even if we just maybe just do a let's play with some co-op or, or death yeah, like that maybe I can awesome. get the developers on and we could talk about just working on. I don't know. There's there's a lot of potential uh, yeah. avenues there. I've covered Quake so much, but I kind of feel like highlighting this one more time would be pretty cool. Put the put a pin in it, so to speak. I'm curious if it can cross-connect clients between the old version, though, and the new version. Like, does it have full access to the console commands? It does. Oh, right, no, it probably, yeah, but it, it probably uses, like, back-end Steam services and stuff, so it probably couldn't even connect to the old client anyway. Never mind. All the CVARs and stuff, it, it all seems to be very much uh, KEX-based. Okay. Where, I mean, so actually, I, I don't know how it directly... I don't know. I need to check. I need to investigate this more. But a lot of the commands that you would use typically in a Kex release are there as well. Okay. So final news topic of the week. It's been added by the docket by John, who is desperate to speak about this. And <laughs> desperate. <laughs> desperate. <laughs> Nothing will stop him. And um, it just simply says here, uh, new Little Big Adventures game in the works. John, take it away. So this came out of nowhere yesterday, and I would expect most people watching this channel may not have any familiarity with the Little Big Adventure series slash uh, the Twinson games, but they were, they were it's, it's two games released by Adeline Software back in the 90s. Isometric adventure style games for the PC with some unique combat mechanics, a little bit Zelda-esque with a bit of a more graphic adventure kind of stuff to it. 
I'm a big fan of these guys. It's really amazing games, and I kind of figured it was basically dead at this point. And in fact, I think I mentioned to you guys the first piece of game related, like any sort of like writing I ever did was uh, an article for Hardcore Gaming 101 uh, on this series. I love it that much. Uh, so I was happy to see that it seems like they're getting some of the original developers back together to build a new game. I mean, obviously it's probably a very long way away at this point, but I'm fascinated and extremely happy to see that the series itself could be returning. Do you think this will be classical styled or do you think it'll have a lot of modern innovation? It's honestly impossible to say right now. It's, it's, uh, it's something we're going to have to see. So there's not that much to say yet. Obviously I just wanted to throw that out here just to let people know, like if you enjoyed this game back in the day, it looks like there is more to come. So I will be keeping an eye on this personally. Okay, well, that rounds up our news stories for the week. Uh, we're going to be talking about some DF content now. So we're going to be talking about some uh, Digital Foundry content now. Uh, but before we do, John, I don't know what I'm looking at on the docket here. So I have a question for you. Right. Do you do you love horses? Do I love... Are they the best of all the animals? The best of all the animals. Um well, you know, obviously the contribution of the horse to human civilization cannot be understated, but <laughs> the best of all the animals is obviously man's best friend, the dog. And I'm joined here, special guest, completely unannounced, by uh, Dog It All Foundry. Come on, boy. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. Is he in view? There he He's is. A bit there low. is. There we, he is. we got him. There, there he is. is. Good boy. <laughs> Have a little treat. Oh, he's so There cute. he is. Oh. Okay, so that is true. That basically answers the, the question. The he is the best of all the animals. You know, he always makes me feel good when things are pretty grim and uh, he's just got a relentlessly positive out outlook. And uh, what can I say? He's a, he's a champion, he's a good boy. He's yeah, a good boy. Yeah, very good boy. He likes to cuddle. <laughs> He's a little bit camera shy today, but uh, that's, that's all right. All right. Yeah. I there would be is. too. <laughs> but uh, I think we got we, we do actually have some content to discuss, right, John? Uh, starting with uh, the new DF Retro. Yeah. So as is tradition, I reveal the topic before it's finished. I'm currently working on it. It is late this month because, well, I was off, and then. Some other video projects came in first, and yeah, now we're finally back to it, and the topic I can reveal is Ridge Racer the second half. Yes. What do I, what do I mean Racer. by that? <laughs> I mean, it's no secret I love Ridge Racer. I talk about Ridge Racer a lot, and I'm going to talk about Ridge Racer some more. Uh, but the idea here is essentially to look at Ridge Racer. It was basically around for two decades, more or less, and the second decade was very different than the first, whereas the first, it was very new games coming out all the time. It was a huge, hugely important game for the PlayStation. And then it launched on PS2 and then it got weird. Then Gran Turismo had happened and things kind of changed for a while. And then it sort of rebirthed on the PSP. And then from there. So for this video, I'm going to talk a little bit about that history between Ridge Racer five up through the PSP, because the main attraction here is Ridge Racer six and seven. I finally want to give them their due, so to speak, because I do like them both, but it's also, 
I still think one of the most interesting Xbox 360 versus PS3 comparisons out there because they are not the same game, but Ridge Racer 7 has all of the tracks from Ridge Racer 6 as well as the cars and such. And it's really an interesting look at development, a development snapshot for that specific time frame, especially in Japan, where we know that Japanese developers did not adapt very quickly to that platform, to those new platforms. Uh, but Namco, I think, made some really smart decisions with the visuals that I want to talk about, including the fact that, I mean, they made a launch game on PS3 that was 1080p native at 60 frames per second, which is kind of absurd. And the fact that it looks as good as it does, uh, it opens up this whole topic about how you design your artwork and like how ambitious you are with certain technical features by sort of pulling back a little bit from trying to push that stuff. You can often deliver a more beautiful game at a really nice fidelity and frame rate. And I think that's exactly what they've done there. So what can I say? Ridge Race. I mean, I actually suggested this one to you a while back. Um, and uh, I was just hugely uh, curious to see the full extent of the differences because uh, I do remember that 360 was, you know, obviously a lot lower resolution, but there's an interesting kick to that and uh, a lot browner in certain stages. But, you know, it's, um, it's really interesting to see uh, the development from one system to the next. And, um, yeah, that 360 had that curious 810p rendering resolution right have you done the do you actually get the benefit of that with 1080p output or not i suspect not uh i'm still trying to determine that for certain but it kind of seems like maybe uh based on our pixel counts yeah because that's the kind of curious thing because um pixel counting kind of came into its own with the launch of xbox 360 when a lot of the launch titles weren't running at native 720p and if you actually use the screenshot function on Xbox Neighborhood, which is like a development tool, um, you could actually get native rendering resolution screenshots at the system level. And um, obviously they were using the system scaler to, to get the final output. But yeah, that was kind of curious. And it would have made pixel counting in the modern era a lot easier. But these, these days they kind of composite everything into the final output resolution. The thing that's really interesting there is also this is pretty much one of the very rare examples where a PS3 version is kind of, at least in my opinion, over technically superior to a 360 release. Like it really, it, it sort of set expectations in a weird way when this launched, this was a launch title for both. But then as the generation goes on, we pretty much find out that, it, you know, eight times out of 10 games are typically better on 360. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is the, the 1080p nature of it, because, um, you know, we were kind of hoping for the 1080p dream from PlayStation 3, which didn't actually materialize in the end. But you look at this game and I still think it looks really, really nice even today. And it was 1080p, 60 frames per second. I think it was just camera replays that gave it some issues frame rate wise. Whenever the camera would get really close to like smoke effects or something you could see the frame rate dip momentarily but it's kind of on it's kind of expected given what we know about the ps3 and it's it's barely an issue it's basically mostly perfect during gameplay but the weird thing is of course that you uh you could set the console to 720p and it would render at native 720p this was actually uh very much a ps3 thing which actually kind of has benefits sometimes where 
most not I don't even know if it's most, but a lot of games that I've tested do actually change the rendering resolution of the game based on your system output. And in some cases, it's actually beneficial because you can improve performance by doing that, uh, which is really kind of fun. In this case, because it has no anti-aliasing, if you use those lower resolutions, the actual image quality degrades sharply. So, yeah, interesting stuff. But, you know, so that's that's the idea. It's, it's Ridge Racer, some history. You know, I'm going to talk a bit about the PSP game as well, which is so darn impressive. And then I guess the ending of the video will be a little less happy because it's pretty much like the downfall of Ridge Racer. Uh, just briefly touching on what happened there. I mean, it, there's two more portable console games, which aren't great. There's uh, the mobile games, which aren't great. There's that Unbounded game, which was done by like Bugbear or something, which is, again, I'm not a huge fan of it. It's no. So like the whole series just kind of, fell flat after that and it makes me sad i really want to see more ridge racer yeah i do think it's well worth uh remastering you know even if it was a smaller scale project i'd love to see the uh, ridge racer properly restored for the modern era of consoles but let's move on so we're going to be making some changes to our patreon um simply because we've had a few months under our belt now we've got an idea of what's popular what's not popular We've got some ideas of things that we want to add to the offering. And we're also looking to do um, extra stuff, but also to expand what is given to the basic supporter tier. So who wants to talk about that? Yeah, so yeah, we've been looking at Patreon changes and one of the first ones that we're really interested in and I think it will really help out this show that we're doing right now, right now, recording right now, is getting out the uh, DF Direct Weekly. We always post it early to our patrons uh, previously in the premium tier and above, but now it's going to be for all Patreon uh, supporters. So if you've chipped in uh, five US dollars to us, well, on Saturdays, usually you'll be end up getting to watch us a bit earlier, which I think is really awesome. Another thing that we've added in to kind of spice up the premium tier and above is uh, we're going to be doing an off-topic show. And the idea is to do it bi-monthly, uh, usually in a in a podcast-like format. It may not always come out with video is the, the idea right now, but this off-topic show would be um, us, a uh, variety of the DF members like Audie, John, Rich, Tom, Will, and myself, discussing topics that are not only related to video games. It could be stuff that we're also interested in other aspects of our life, uh, also nerdy stuff. Uh, and if you're you know, generally into what we talk about here on the show and the personality stuff we bring in here, well, that's what you'll kind of find there just in greater depth. And I think our first episode, we'll be talking about how we got into the video games industry since we thought that was such a, such a really cool uh, question that was posed the last time uh, we were here. And another change that uh, kind of builds up on all these things I was just talking about right now is that we're going to finally sort out the RSS feed as a podcast format for DF Direct Weekly. So if you don't have the uh, bandwidth or time to watch a full video or you're in your car during a commute, well, you'll be able to listen to this as a podcast as well. So a number of changes coming up. Hopefully uh, you find them as exciting as we do and you'll get to know us a bit better through them as well. And as always, we can always talk about this on our Discord. So that's uh, kind of what I have to say about that. The big sort of takeaway doing the whole um, supporter program thing has been uh, that people really love DF Direct Weekly. So if we can get more people getting early access to that, that's going to be a pretty awesome thing. And at the same time, we can still provide extra value to people on the higher tiers. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to getting going on that. 
So um, I think we're going to wrap up our shows, speaking of the supporter program, with um, questions from supporters. Here's our first question from Robert Brown. <laughs> um, would you rather a theoretical PS5 Pro doubled the compute units to 72 or added some kind of machine learning core for better AI upscaling? So there have been a number of rumors this week about um, uh, a prospective mid-generation refresh for the current generation of consoles arriving. I think dates 2022 was meant, no way. 2023 was mentioned. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Alex, what do you make about this uh, sort of question that, that Robert Brown has asked here? I think, uh, well, it's not going to be such a... <laughs> the the machine, machine learning like tensor cores are not the same size on the die as doubling the compute unit. So it wouldn't ever be this give and take in this method. Um, I, would, uh, I would like that, actually. Uh, maybe it would... Uh, for example, if they did do that, uh, and they and say say there's a PlayStation Five Pro, uh, and they did add machine learning to it, they could actually uh, make true that 8K moniker on the box, uh, for example. Uh, so they could use machine learning to bring up games to 8K, which we've seen on the NVIDIA side is okay at lower resolutions. Starts getting really good if the game's already at native 4K. Um, in general, though, I think if there is a PlayStation 5 Pro, I would like uh, I would like machine learning hardware in it. I don't think it needs to be that much more powerful from normal compute side of things. Uh, rather, I would like to see a much more robust ray tracing implementation uh, than what they currently have. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that, Alex. Actually, I think I think looking at it more rather than just like adding more compute units or something like that. I think looking into things like machine learning and beefing up the ray tracing features would be more beneficial right um and i feel like that's something that could scale well enough between an original ps5 and a theoretical ps5 pro uh and it you know and yeah obviously with machine learning that would actually allow you to reach that 8k resolution but i don't think actually 8k is that important to be honest i feel like it's just not right now uh and i think it's kind of a folly to chase that high pixel count at the moment um and in fact, that is better spent on just getting to like a higher quality 4K image, to be honest, uh, at the moment. So I don't know, but it's really, it's really tough to say what they're going to do at this point, because like what we've heard from some of the engineers that work on this, it's becoming increasingly difficult to improve the specifications of these consoles in a meaningful way. Uh, within a certain budget limitation based on the current rate of improvements that we're seeing in this space. And I really think it really is the stuff like machine learning and the ray tracing features in particular where I think the consoles need the most improvement, whereas everything else is fairly well balanced as is. And I feel like stuff like DLSS hitting, uh, I think that only came into its own well after the consoles could have had any sort of comparable solution ready. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's the one area where it's really missing right now in terms of something that would have been super useful. The question is asking basically, do we double the GPU size um, or do we add AI upscaling? Um, I don't really see any benefit of doubling the, the GPU size um, uh, simply because it makes the machine completely unviable to make 
Um, it's it would be a gigantic chip. And uh, again, I'm going to refer people to uh, the um, uh, interview we did with Andrew Goosen, the chief architect of the Xbox Series consoles, where basically he's almost ruling out um, a pro console. I wouldn't say completely ruling out, but he's basically saying that the cost per transistor is not declining. It's, you know, it's either static or getting higher. So the concept of producing a console at a mainstream price point becomes um, very, very challenging. And that's exactly why they did an Xbox Series S. I mean, to paraphrase him here, the idea is, is that further on in the console's life cycle, you would reduce the cost, right? You would make a slim version. Um, they were saying that they can't really see a road to that being able to happen. So that's why they made the Xbox Series S. So you get your cost reduced version at the beginning of the generation. Now, whether that's actually going to come to fruition, we don't know. Um, this concept that, you know, there's a lot of uh, rumors going around at the moment about pro consoles targeting 8K resolution. There's been no real evidence that 8K is becoming anything worth doing at the moment. There's no, you know, there's no sort of demand for it, really. We're still in the transition to 4K, arguably. And um, the concept of rendering natively at 8K, I think there's one project on console that we're aware of that's going to be doing it, um, which is upcoming. But beyond that, it's just kind of, it's just not required. It's just not needed. The GPU can be put to better use elsewhere. And the concept of spending billions of dollars, you know, net total, making all of these uh, machines that for, for TVs that people aren't going to have, that I just don't really see it happening. Um, and I do see AI upscaling as being a better solution for in, for improved 4K quality. Um, but again, you know, as we're seeing, that doesn't happen easily. We still haven't seen anything of the Microsoft solution there. And um, just generally, I think that's the way forward. In terms of increased raid facing power, I think that's a really good call. The question then would be um, uh, sort of, uh, you, you may well be segregating the old, the current generation consoles, um, you know, to a, to a degree that the market may not like. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? You'd be you'd be increasing rate facing fidelity, um, but the existing consoles would be actively disadvantaged, and that's kind of what the platform holders shied away from last gen, where they were literally saying you get slightly, but well, you get better performance and you get higher resolutions. That's kind of was easier for people to understand. So I would be really, I mean, I'm not going to rule out that there's going to be a mid-generation refresh. I think it's probably easier for Microsoft because they've basically said that, you know, we see Xbox as an evolving platform, whereas PlayStation is saying we still believe in console generations, even though they've moved a lot of their slate to cross-gen. So yeah, that's. I don't know. I don't think we should be talking about pro consoles at the moment as anything beyond a sort of flight of fancy. And I don't really see them happening in certainly not 2022, 2023. I don't think so. The state of the silicon shortage right now is just means that yeah, this, also, these are going to be around longer, I feel, before we need right. to see any sort of refresh. Yeah. You have COVID pushing all these next-gen products a year ahead anyway, so they're going to start launching mid-gen consoles, even though they haven't brought out their first-gen offerings yet. It doesn't seem yeah, like people and, can't you know, buy them yet. That's yeah. the thing. 
I mean, we've barely seen any next generation only titles at this point. Cross gen. I'm, I'm growing weary of cross gen. I'll level with you. Uh, I'm me too. <laughs> so much so. That Sonic yeah. video, man. That 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 just like it was like getting punched in the face yeah. in terms of like, oh, I have to cover nine <laughs> different iterations of this thing, and they all have different problems. I'm sorry, John. Ooh. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but the irony was there that you kind of needed, due to the quality of the port, you needed the next generation consoles to just brute force a good to experience. fix it. <laughs> yeah, crazy stuff. Okay, well, let's move on to the next question. And it's from uh, WM Cheerman. Hello, guys. Love the show. My question is, what are the exact differences between mesh shaders and primitive shaders? I keep hearing the PlayStation 5 only has primitive shaders. Is this correct? And how will that impact games? Great question. Alex. Yes, on a technical level, from what I understand, the... Um PlayStation 5 has the equivalent of what the original Navi had, which was priv uh, primitive shaders and not the complete RDNA 2 mesh shader implementation. And on a technical level, actually it won't be such a big deal for a lot of uh, projects uh, because honestly, you're going to have a lot of the same functionality mapping just slightly differently and with more limitations. Uh, but from what I do understand is that primitive shaders do not have... Um, access to the same programmable amplification stage that uh, mesh shaders have. So there, there could be technically um, very interesting tessellation schemes that happen to mesh shaders that do not happen uh, with a primitive shader. Uh, but in general, I'm going to say um, it's going to take a while for devs to even use mesh shaders and primitive shaders anyway, because they're doing some of these things through, through compute anyway right now, and they would need to uh, maybe go back and uh, rewrite all that stuff, or maybe they're doing it through their traditional pipeline now, so they have to rewrite all this stuff. It's going to take a while. Uh, it's, you know, right now, I don't think it's a big deal. Maybe in four to five years, we'll see some benefits on that on the Xbox side through uh, through certain titles. But right now, I think both are not using it, mainly. But both definitely are not using it. Oh, yeah. you know? We've had mesh shaders since Turing 2018, right? Yeah, and it's... It's using like one title, by the way, Wait, on PC mesh shaders. Uh, it's a Chinese MMO, okay. uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's uh, beautiful, though. It's an Unreal Engine 4 title. They use it, uh, they're using mesh shaders to do uh, like super high poly uh, meshes, non nanite style meshes, by the way. So it's traditional rasterization. Uh, looks really good, uh, but it's like the only title I know. And it's been like two plus years. So. Well, I think that's pretty much covered off that question. Uh, let's move on to the next one. So this one's from uh, Kevin O'Connor. Questioned. I like this. Question. Question. That's, that's, that's the way to pose a question. Question. I like it. He's getting a reasonably optimized. Yeah. Um, he's getting a reasonably optimized performance from newer PC games, starting to require increased hobbyist slash technical knowledges. Technical knowledge. Again, creating a higher barrier to entry for new PC gamers. Optimization is always a part of PC gaming. But things felt more straightforward during the Windows 7 era when there were fewer variables compared to the previous or current eras. Context. These days, uh, settings for newer features like HDR, FreeSync, resolution scaling, modern anti-aliasing types, and so on are fragmented across graphics card and monitor, dash monitor dashboards, old and new Windows control slash system panels, and in-game menus, and are often poorly labeled. This is on top of considerations that have always been there, like resolution, texture, quality, and so forth. 
Uh, I'll bring you in in a moment, John, but Alex. I don't agree with this uh, because I think it's never been easier to get a game running well on PC. Uh, you have to, like, because the consoles are now closer to PC than they've ever been before. And, you know, we've had a, I think we've had really great CPUs for a while on PC now. So uh, you're, you're getting to 60 is usually not a big challenge. Um, uh, I don't find the settings menus have gotten worse in any way. If anything, they've gotten better because we now have preview windows with images saying what they do. Uh, they even have a lot of ports have things that say like, how expensive is this on your CPU or GPU? Uh, I think it's actually gotten way better than this Windows 7 era that you're romanticizing there, Kevin. Uh, the only thing that I may say is a little bit true is that DirectX 12 made things more complex uh, so sometimes you just don't have an idea what's going on because the game's stuttering on PC. And this is usually, honestly, it's like nine times out of 10, it's the developer's fault. And it's not your fault. Uh, because we've had this before where playing a game before it comes out, and it's DX12 and it's stuttering, Horizon Zero Dawn, Ascent. Uh, you know, I can go through a list of names that I just can't think of right now. And it's like, oh God, PC sucks. What's going on? Uh, it's actually always the developer's fault here. Uh, so uh, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, but yeah, I think it's passion. Better. I love it, Alex. What do you like, James? Because you still play a lot of PC games. I do, uh, and I actually think Alex is only talking about one half of the equation. You've missed a very important part, and this is the part that sucks about modern PC games: the displays HDR. and the sound hardware that people use today. There's a lot more variation, and and there's a lot more variables to deal with. Uh, when you're talking things like HDR, for instance. It's a pain on the PC still. Uh, it can absolutely be. Depending on how your display handles it, you have to worry about, well, I got to make sure I get the right bit depth, for instance, otherwise you're going to get nasty color banding. You can't use 8 bits per channel. That doesn't work. So you have you you actually do need to know that your graphics card needs to be very specifically set up to display HDR correctly because the PC isn't even going to tell you that, right? You can start a game in 4K, 8 bits per channel, uh, and just go and it'll actually work in HDR, but you're going to have issues. You're going to see tons of color banding in the skies, especially, uh, things like that. And if you're not aware of why that is, that can actually be difficult to fix because that requires fiddling around in your graphics card control panel. And then once you get into that, you know, you start to deal with, once you bring FreeSync into the mix or G-Sync, I feel works pretty well out of the box. Primarily the FreeSync stuff, I find a little to be a little more fiddly in general, uh, which can be annoying. And also just the, you know, dealing with full screen versus exclusive full screen kind of modes, like borderless window versus full screen. Like sometimes one works well and the other does not. Like you'll get weird frame persistence issues, even with like VRR. Like, so you see the games themselves, exactly what you said. I think they're easier than ever and getting performance is easier than ever. And it's, it's excellent. But all this other stuff related to external devices that you use, I find, has become more difficult. But it's not necessarily the fault of it. It's just the fact that there's now way more options than ever before, more standards. And, you know, I think things like HDR and using, like, your surround sound setups and stuff, that's very fiddly on the PC because primarily I think most PC gamers probably don't even use a display that has those features, right? If you're trying to use your PC on like a home theater setup, it's a lot different than just loading it up on your monitor. You know what I mean? 
the plug and play nature of PC is, I'd say better than ever before, but there's areas where, because there's no standardization on the PC platform that it makes it, you have to become a professional, not a professional, you have to become an amateur at, uh, at knowing some things. But one thing I want to mention really quickly, because you mentioned borderless windows and full screen, this is another error, area where I almost feel like the developers at Oh, fault yeah. Yes, yes, yes. 100%. Like, like every single time where they where they don't have, where they call things like, for example, full screen when it's obviously borderless window, or they call it, or they have borderless window mode that uh, hides frames and doesn't show them in a triple buffered manner. I just had this... Um, I had that with No Man's Sky back in the day. I just had it recently with Serious Sam, by the way, too. Uh, so, you know, there's like a... There's just... Because, you know, it's kind of Wild West in a little way. It's a little bit Wild West. Uh, you have to be on top of that API game on PC if you're shipping a latest title. You have to know what's actually what Windows is doing to your, to your like, display. A lot of developers still... Oh, a lot of developers on PC still literally enumerate resolutions instead of top, instead of querying Windows. You see this, uh, it was in Resident Evil. I mean, that's recently, it. It's, for it's this relationship uh, you know, between like, Windows uh, and the game, and a lot of games don't get this right. Uh, yeah, I just don't think developers honestly know what Windows is doing, and they're not paying attention as much, or they don't care. Uh, it, they're shipping a product anyway. A lot of people don't notice these little issues, but when you become a power user like John, myself, and obviously like Kevin is here, um, then these things start creeping up and then they can really annoy you. We're getting more choice in PC game settings. I mean, some of the menus are kind of, they, they are kind, they do need to be kind of carefully curated. And um, it's often the case that you don't really understand what the settings are doing or the cost. And uh, I'd quite like to see that sort of, there has to be some sort of standardization there. Um, it's kind of crazy to see just the sheer amount of flexibility you have in tailoring the experience, but you know, it kind of assumes that people know what they're doing. Um, but you're right, there is, there is also the whole issue with, you know, full screen modes that aren't full screen. And there are games like Metro Exodus where you don't have the flexibility to tailor everything to your, to your liking. And um, that's that's not great. So it's a it's a difficult one. I think the biggest thing, I mean, we saw it with um, the Crisis Two Remaster, where they're not going to put in a can it run Crisis mode because people thought they were missing out by not running a mode that was designed to <laughs> to basically nullify your PC by ramping up everything to the max. But that kind of sums up where we're at at the moment, right? Where if people see ultra settings and they can't have it, they think they're missing out on something. It's the classic fear of missing out. FOMO. And um, yeah, to the point where they actually removed that mode from uh, the Crisis 2 Remastered because they were kind of thinking that people were fundamentally thinking that their game was suboptimal. I actually, I think that's funny because they've already done this before that happened with warhead crisis warhead as well where it was like uh we're just going to change the labeling so people don't <laughs> well they did it with quite they did, put on your that was the crazy thing with settings. crisis 2 they kind of moved in the opposite direction where the low setting was like high do you remember that <laughs> they just they just changed the label <laughs> low setting was now high uh, because you know and that, that is kind of an interesting perspective on things right because you know control on um uh, on consoles is basically low settings with medium reflections, but it looks awesome, you know? <laughs> so, it's, you know, you're, you're missing out on something that's actually quite small iterative upgrades by going higher. And uh, I want to complain about Windows 
handling multiple displays and switching between them, it's still clunky. You have to use like third party tools to even get something remotely functional, but it just feels like I want to move over to this display and then back to my PC monitor. It's always a hassle. Like it just drives me insane. Like get it. Like sometimes you'll do it. Oh, it looks like it works up oh, but the sound doesn't work. And then it, I can't figure out why reboot the PC. It's fine. Then I go back and then the resolution and desktop placements are all messed up. So I got to reorganize all that. It just, I feel like at this point, I don't understand how they don't have an, a seamless, fast, easy way to essentially swap around your desktop configuration at will. Like, like I just want to be able to move to the TV seamlessly and not have to spend five or 10 minutes like fiddling with things to make it work. And, and even stuff when I'm using my PC monitor here, ultra wide is so common in the PC space, but there's still game shipping that just don't support it. And I'm just, I'm it's annoying or like the monitor I use goes up to 175 frames per second or 160 Hertz, different ones like that. It's like, I'd like to push it out as far as I can. And some games have these weird arbitrary caps. Like I just tested the PC version of Sonic colors and it's not great, but the frame rate seems to be arbitrarily around like 146 frames per second as like the maximum. And I'm like, okay, what like well, there's no reason so for that <laughs> stuff like that and it, so it's 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 always it's all these little things and it's always tied to like external hardware and the windows relationship between pc games the games themselves are usually in pretty good shape but it's this stuff this is the problem now so one thing to get back to kevin's qu question here really quickly instead of just uh bemoaning a lot of dumb but stuff uh is uh no, no, it's good. Uh, but one thing that, uh, so a lack of technical knowledge and requiring more knowledge to understand what's going on in the settings. I actually almost wish uh, Windows brought back the rating system for your PC hardware. You'd start off Windows and it would say like, do you want to scan your hardware? And it would say like what your RAM is, you know, your CPU, your GPU, and all these other things. Uh, and this could, this system technically could be a really great one for developers to produce uh, minimum and uh, recommended requirements for games. Instead of the completely nebulous, you never know what they're doing thing. You don't know what to expect when you load up a game. Uh, most developers just put out some minimum spec or recommended spec with not actually saying what graphical quality settings it is, how stable the frame rate is, or anything like that. So you just go in not really knowing. I almost feel like if Windows brought back a standardization of how to rate hardware, then developers could latch onto that and give uh, users a much better understanding of what to expect in their in-game option menus and before you purchase it. OK, let's move on to the next question. This one's from uh, Richard Summers, and he says, with console reviews of late, you often mention running a game not at the maximum resolution supported by the console, e.g. series S slash X at 1080p and not 1440p slash 4K. This confused me somewhat in that having my series X connected to a 4K display and then setting the output to 1080p just gives me a poor image quality. Same with my series S set at 1080p and not 1440p. Uh, so yeah, I think we need to clarify this, but basically if you've got a 4K screen, you should set your console to 4K. Uh, no ifs and buts. If you've got a 1080p screen, set it to 1080p. And John, you can explain why. First of all, what he might be talking about is when we've discussed the capture process for our videos, right? Yeah, for like 120 uh, hertz stuff. Because specifically in our case, well, I think in everybody's case, there aren't really any devices out there that support uh, 4K 120 hertz capture, right? So if we want to show 120 hertz at all, we have to essentially set it to 1080p, which is supported by those devices. 
Uh, and I think we've brought this up in several different videos where it's like, okay, this footage is now at 1080p because of a capture card limitation more than anything else. Because unless I'm confusing things, I don't recall any of us ever saying you should run your console at a lower resolution on your screen. I mean, besides the capture, I mean, we did talk about the PS3 thing where you can get better performance, but that doesn't even apply here at all. I mean, I definitely... What Rich said is what I would say. The only the only exception to this is if you're if you're running the Xbox and you're using the 120 hertz mode, uh, and a game is 60 frames per second, uh, I actually find that setting the console to 60 provides a better image quality in motion, because what you're doing if your output is 120, the frame rate is 60, you get that same double image effect that you get when a 30 FPS game running on a 60 hertz display. Most people won't notice this. The persistence blur sort of covers it up, but it essentially makes games look a little blurrier in motion when you're running it this way. Uh, and so even with VRR, I still often go back to 60 hertz, and especially if you want to use black frame insertion on a 60 hertz game. Um, and by the way, black frame insertion is a great way to visualize what I'm talking about because it gets rid of the persistence blur and you'll see like a side scrolling or fast action 60 FPS game. You'll get that double image effect. So that's really the only exception where I would might say disable the 120 Hertz for certain games, but you always want to target, uh, the it's, I think it's better to target the native output resolution or native resolution of your panel over anything else and let the consoles do the scaling of whatever the game is. The exception, I think, might be certain titles uh, for PS4 Pro where they, I mean, I think it's thankfully a thing of the past now, but um, there were certain games that had specific modes uh, set aside for the 1080p output of the console when really they should have had selectable option in game to choose between the various quality presets that, that were available. Uh, it seems to be a thing of the past now, but you know there were examples on PS4 Pro where you got better performance um, from the console um, by setting it to 1080p, or in the case of like Red Dead Redemption 2, you got a native 1080p output that turned off the checkerboarding and uh, I think there was slightly improved performance there. So yeah, that's pretty much the only exception. But yeah, I think um, one thing which um, we probably should do a little bit of work on is actually what happens when you uh, have like a, a display set to a different output resolution to your display's native resolution. Um, I believe what happens on Xbox is that the GPU scaler within the console, if a game is like a, a non-native uh, resolution, the GPU scaler will actually scale to the output resolution of your console, uh, of your display rather. So if the game is native 1440p and you've got a 1440p screen, it should actually render native 1440p if it uses the system APIs. Um, I'm not quite sure what happens on, well, obviously PS5 doesn't support 1440p, but um, I'm curious if there's like double scaling going on there as there was with PS4 Pro. I could see one weird exception that's pretty... So a few displays, it's very rare, uh, have the option to do a nearest neighbor, neighbor upscale uh, of content. So in, in select, let's say you had a 1080p game and you set your Xbox to 4K, the Xbox then upscales it. It sort of does like a Lanchos or however you say that, Lengsos, uh upscale. Uh, so you get kind of blurred edges, you know, it's like filtered carefully, but if you had a display that allowed nearest neighbor upscale, you could actually do perfect one to 
four pixel kind of upscaling essentially and get like this super sharp but slightly more pixelated looking image that i kind of find preferable you can do this on the pc so by the way pat, this could be useful yeah for for back and pass, so, this might be useful. Yeah, you know? that would be useful. But I guess my main thinking here is I would love it if console manufacturers actually allowed something like that um, to change the scaling algorithm. I don't see how that would ever factor into like a friendly user interface thing, but I don't really love blurred scaling. I mean, it's necessary when the resolution isn't like a, a mathematical match, but if it is, then I'd like 720p content, for instance could look awesome on a 4k screen if you could do nearest neighbor scaling but they usually don't it's just blurred to heck and it looks terrible so this one is from lee yarka it's, it's a long, long one. one. Oh boy <laughs> every week my questions seem to resolve around dlss and this week is no different the implementation of dlss in many games seems to have options for performance balance and quality with the newly added ultra performance for particularly taxing games when playing in a 4k resolution Quality mode is clear that quality mode is clear that you take a low resolution image and upsample the image, so it appears to be higher resolution, but with hopefully a greater FPS. Uh, performance and ultra performance take higher resolutions downsampled. I'm not quite sure I understand this. Um, anyway, the, the bottom line is that he wants to know <laughs> seemingly what DLSS performance modes do. It's just basically a different input resolution, right, Alex? Yeah, that's it. So yeah, don't overthink this, Lee. I know you're, you're on the right track right here. Uh, so quality mode, it, uh, let's start with 4K and just say that. It's like half of the, it's about half of the resolution. It's like 2.25, I think, uh, uh, of it will go from 1440p to 4K, upscaling it by like 2.25, and it'll make it look more like a 4K image. From uh, performance mode, it's from 1080p, so it's four times that image to make it look like 4K ultra low performance mode or whatever it's called, ultra performance mode, is from 720p to 4K. A huge jump, nine times resolution jump. Um, and that's about it. Each one exists to increase your performance level and give you, and take, make some minor adjustments to quality. I actually don't think the gulf between quality and performance mode is actually that big, usually, in a lot of games, uh, unless they have ray tracing. And then it can be a little bit larger. Um, so that's about it. I don't. I don't think there's anything more complex about it. The only benefits uh, benefits is that you get uh, higher performance when you go down these modes into performance. You know, balanced performance, ultra performance, and uh, the negatives are that you'll lose image quality stability. Uh, and in a game with ray tracing, the ray tracing will technically be less precise for like things like reflections, uh, especially. That's where you see it the most. You don't really see it for things like uh, ambient occlusion or uh, shadows or one of these other things. But yeah, that's about it. Yeah, it's just basically the uh, input resolution changes. And that's it. 720p, if we're talking about 4K, ultra performance 720p, performance 1080p, quality 1440p, and balanced is somewhere in between. Performance and quality. Performance and quality. It's that simple. Um, okay, so let's move on. Um, question here from Jonas Larsen Tagizade. Sorry, Oof. Mm -hmm. I always forget. Yeah, I love that name. <laughs> Are there any plans to include Crisis Warhead in the Crisis Trilogy collection? If not, why? Thought you might have the answer to my question, given your close contacts with Crytek. It's an interesting question, right, John? Yeah, and I think the answer is no. <laughs> uh, but I think 
I mean, Alex, you might have to agree. With, I, I don't know what you think about this, but my best guess is that this stems from the fact that Crisis 1 Remastered, whether whether for the better or not, it was derived from that original console release running on CryEngine 3, and they haven't done a remastered project from an actual CryEngine 2 source, uh, which is what this would require. And I think the time investment necessary to make this work on anything other than the PC uh, is beyond what they would be able to do. I mean, what do you think? Okay, so I think that's that would be the truth in an ideal world where we had knowledge of this. Um, there's also something I heard from someone who may have worked at Crytek at some point in time. So this is just me just pulling on industry contacts here that uh, the source to Crisis Warhead doesn't exist anymore because it was accidentally at one point deleted. Uh, so okay. that's, that's even worse. Uh, so you know, like you you know how you lose things. You know, developers lose things over decades of time you know we've seen that with nintendo stuff we've seen that with uh you know a whole bunch of stuff over time you don't have the original source art anymore for video files and things like that well it can also happen to the source code for games someone loses it has a lot actually so uh i think that's what i heard of being the case so that you know you can quote me on that i won't give a source but i I think that's the reason why we don't see it actually final question and uh, it's an interesting one it's from oliver mckenzie John and Audie, and to a lesser extent, Alex, <laughs> seem... <A> lesser extent, <laughs> <laughs> I just love... <laughs> You've been oh, instantly discounted extent. here, Alex. You, <laughs> you have been judged. Anyway, let's start again. John and Audie, and to a lesser extent, Alex, seem very interested in retro titles, even those that came before their time. Richard, however does not seem nearly as attracted to older games, despite the, the, despite the fact that he lived and worked through basically the entire era of 2D gaming. It's a bit of a stretch. Why do you think this is? <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of curious about this question. Why do you think this is? Um, I mean, you could just say, Rich, why, why don't you like retro games so much? Um, and you've actually answered your own question there, which is... You know, let me just make clear, I have not lived through the entire era. Actually, I have lived through the entire era of 2D gaming. Lived. Lived. Yeah, but lived I, wasn't, I wasn't perceptually aware of uh, the very <laughs> early beginnings of 2D gaming in the 1970s. Um, mm-hmm. My mind was on other things, like crawling, learning to talk, such like. <laughs> but... Um, but you have answered your question to a certain extent here is it to the fact that I lived and indeed worked through those years, right? So from a journalist's perspective and indeed the DF mission statement, you know, it's like the state of the art in gaming, right? And I'm always constantly looking forward. And I have lived through all of those games in the past and played them and reviewed them. And, you know, it's just my personal um, uh, opinion that I want to look at new things. So I do appreciate the games of the past and I can maybe appreciate them in a different way to other people because I was actually there when they were current and when they were new. But, you know, certainly when you're in a games journalism environment, there's always something new around the corner, something uh, that you want to take a look at. And so I'm just kind of uh, programmatically wired to look forward and to see what the, the new things are that are happening. That isn't to say I don't appreciate the games of the past isn't to say I don't play the games of the past. I mean, um, we were talking earlier about the Quake remaster and just the kind of memories of those death matches and 
the you know the Q test when that arrived, you know, I was there. I could see that my PC wasn't going to be able to run that that game, uh, which in the current era would mean that it's sub-optimized. It's not optimal, which is kind of kind of ironic, isn't it? But um, yeah, it's just basically my personal sort of viewpoint on technology and gaming. You know, I, I appreciate what happened in the past, and I was there. And, you know, I said my bits about it at the time. And um, it's just my personal uh, sort of perspective that I'm always looking forward. And, you know, the younger guys can take a look at the uh, older games and come up with their own fresh perspectives. They can talk to the people that were there at the time and try to gain a further understanding of what these games are all about. I think this is all really valuable. That's why we give John the latitude to do DF Redfo. But, you know, that's kind of my perspective on it. Similarly, when you get older, you have less time to play games. You know, you're doing things like uh, raising a family, you know, getting married and whatnot. So priorities shift. You have to sort of allocate time accordingly. I'm kind of curious. I mean, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting question to hear from Oliver and that he seems to be asking you guys why I don't like older uh -huh. games. Yeah, why doesn't Rich do yeah. it? <laughs> I, think, I think I have a good answer for that. Go on. And... Now that I've worked through an entire console generation <laughs> doing this, uh, the fact is when you do this stuff as part of a, a job and you deal with the reactions to things, it does actually color your feelings about them in a way. Like when I look back at the old consoles, I have more of a, an emotional sort of resonance with it. I remember things about it and I appreciate it in a different way, but when I look back at like PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, I mean, I remember a lot of the games I've enjoyed, but it also triggers a lot of other th thoughts and experiences, some good, some not so good, uh, to the point where I love the games, but the consoles to me have just become, Rich said this so many years ago, and it always stuck with me, but and now I, under, now I agree, the consoles are just data boxes from which we extract, well, data. Right. Like they're not I don't have an emotional attachment to any of the current consoles at all. It really is just a work tool. Uh, the games, yes, but the machines, it's it's that's all it is anymore. And I really think that that happens to anybody that does this kind of stuff for long enough where it loses something. You know what I mean? Like it just that feeling you had in the past. It, I'd love to recapture that, but it's just it's gone. I'm not saying it's all bad. There's so there's a lot of good good sides to all this as well. It's just it's different. Your relationship is different with these machines now. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of interested in your perspective on this, Alex, because you're in terms of uh, having a professional relationship with games. It's still you know you're only a few years in really. So what's your take on this? Um, yeah, I, I actually think both of you have the proper perspective on this where you've lived through it. So you've already talked about it and you're interested in the new and as well as the fact that, you know, you have a completely different emotional resonance with something that isn't your work. Um, so, and that is actually how much it is for me as well, too, at this point in time, even though it's, I'm so early in this game, so to speak, where I feel, um, like, I'm interested in the tech behind games and I'm really interested in like new rendering features and all these things, but I'm less like attached to the hardware in the current PC I'm using than I was in the past, mainly because it's uh, the current PC I'm using technically is always uh, pretty top of the line. I'm 
you know, getting hardware updates to work and things like that. It's not something I'm with for years on an end and I invest myself every evening in it as a hobby in the same way I did earlier. Uh, so I'd feel less attached to like having like an RTX 3080 or something like that than I did when I got like, uh, I don't know, like an X800 XT back in the day. Uh, so I'm less attached to hardware now than I am then. Uh, I, you know, that that's definitely f for certain. Um, I'm still just as emotionally invested in the individual games that are coming out. Uh, even though I think that, you know, at least on the AAA space, it's still sometimes pretty boring for me, a lot of games, uh, honestly, you know, but, uh, but that's just, you know, like personal preference there. Uh, and, and there's something to be said about the changing nature of technology. Uh, when we were younger, all of us, uh, technology was limited to a place and a time of day. Uh, for example, you could not lug necessarily your Super Nintendo around with you everywhere, your PC with you around everywhere. Now we're surrounded by technology and the dis discourse around technology through our phones all the time. So we're constantly immersed in it versus it being like kind of some sort of a sacred special thing on the side that we would do uh, in a very like emotionally attached way. Uh, I think that's something that's also changed over time. And I... Uh, the way to get that there's that's not you can't go back to that that's just history now uh you know uh, we're all immersed in technology all the time now so that's something that also changed in society so when we go back and look at games from these times it's also emotionally resonant because it's you know it was a specific time and place and uh, it's gone I, I remember talking to you before you even joined us and you've been displaying that same type of excitement when talking about rebuilding your retro pcs Yes. <laughs> uh, versus the new stuff, right? So I know yeah. you, I, I've seen I've seen you get excited still about that stuff in the same way that I do with that old hardware. There is something there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's there. It's one hundred percent there. I yeah. mean, if we look at DF Retro and why it's awesome, it's because basically, you know, you weren't a professional at the time. You were a gamer, and you were enjoying these games for what they were on the systems that you had available. Um, you weren't testing them or doing any of the kind of standard digital foundry stuff at the time. So, you know, you basically enjoyed the games for what they were. And in the here and now, you can apply what you've learned professionally and kind of revisit that excitement, that enthusiasm, and kind of merge the two to produce something that's, that's you know, interesting and special. Um, but yeah, basically, I'd say the perspective does shift once you become a professional in the industry. And um, yeah, so basically I've been in this game, you know, for like 30 years. So that's why I'm not particularly interested in revisiting the games that I was looking at professionally 30 years ago. There's, you know, one or two really special ones. I mean, it's just, um, uh, again, I, I talk about it, Quake Remastered. That game was just such a phenomenon at the time that I really want to recapture that feeling. And uh, that's what excites me about Night Dive's work is not only that they've done that, They've actually tried to make the game sit more comfortably on a modern platform. So I get all of the nostalgia, but I don't get shortchanged in terms of, um, you know, the features of the new uh, range of hardware that's available and the displays that are available. So, yeah, I think that one kind of uh, sort of sums everything up there. Very interesting mm -hmm. question. And it Very threw well, up yeah, quite I a like few uh, answers that I wasn't expecting, but I think we're going to round things off there. So. If you enjoyed the DF Direct Weekly, please do like, subscribe, share. Please do consider joining the DF Supporter Program. 
pose your questions, get early access uh, to the weekly. It's all pretty awesome stuff. And of course, our Discord, amazing community there. Join in, have fun, interact with the team directly on a day-to-day basis. Uh, But that's all from us for now. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of this Mammoth Direct. And just generally thanks for watching and supporting Digital Foundry.